As a pastor, I get to spend a lot of time with people in their highest of highs, in the depths of their lows, uh, celebrate at weddings and grieve with um, couples during unexpected divorces, uh, get to officiate baptism and preside over burials, get to hold up little babies and dedicate them to a big God and uh, stand with parents and pray with them that prodigal kids would come home. And in the scripture, when you read the psalm of scripture, particularly um, in the psalms, you'll see that the writer was writing, David or someone was writing either in peacetime or when there was a lack of peace, when there was tumult and turmoil and just a lack of tranquility uh, in the land. And I've noticed that we, uh, when things are going well, we tend to forget things that were once important to us. I've I've noticed a thing, we don't talk about it much, I've, I've seen it experientially with my own eyes and observations and have been reading about it from Gallup and other people that something happens in life when things kind of go our way when we've uh, maybe uh, married and raised our kids and they're gone or close to being gone something happens between uh, you know in that middle stage of life between 45 and 55 you say well preacher I'm not that old but you will be one day so listen to me but between 45 and 55 we tend to uh, you know we 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 tend to forget God in some ways. We tend, and this is happening in America, a lot of people are forgetting some of the formations, some of the rituals, some of the rhythms and habits that form them into happiness and holiness in Jesus, and they're no longer, they're no longer doing those things. Uh, they've forgotten their first love. One of the blessings of Fondren uh, right now is so many young people, particularly young of families that we were full of them at 9.30 this morning, just little babies running around. And one of the joys of ministry and life is noticing that when someone starts reproducing and making their children, that they'll say, hey, let's get back in church. Let's bring our kids to church. Let's be more regular in church. And that happens, and we rejoice over that. It's such a, a good thing. It's why we're calling you to give over and beyond to help us grow up and to get the third floor ready, and we're a third of the way there right now. But uh, it's a good thing, but I, I've noticed this trend where people between 45 and 55, so many aren't in church anymore. Their kids are gone and they're out of the rhythm. I, in July, gave up a lot of the sermons to some of our other guys. They preached, but I was mostly in town and I did a lot of weddings. And I, At these weddings, all of them, there was a common thread because I wasn't preaching the next day. I hung around at the reception and dominated the dance floor, just tore it up, uh, killed it if you will. I remember we're non-denominational, not Baptist or something. So just, I tore it up on the dance floor, but I was talking to friends. I was talking to people my age or a little bit younger, or maybe a little bit older. And many of them confessed with, you know, right there with the loud music, they were yelling in my ear a confession of, you know, we don't go anymore. We're, we're out of the rhythm. We're out of the habit of doing so. And I want to say a word because it bewilders me and it saddens me. But, uh, for you and I to live during peaceful times, to live foolishly and to neglect God and what he says important, it's just unwise. And not to be negative Nelly, I want to speak hope and inspiration in you today, but you won't always be at peace. And here's what's a regular occurrence in my life is that I'll sit with somebody right there in my office and they've been out of church. They've severed relational ties with God's people. They were walking through some peaceful times, but they got the phone call. The spouse walked out, the doctor called with the bad diagnosis. Someone crossed the double yellow line. 
and they were hit and the bottom fell out and they don't know where to turn. Today, I want to issue an invitation. I want to be really clear in this sermon. It may not be a good sermon, but I want to be very clear. I want to issue everybody a twofold invitation. The first invitation, and I want you to think afresh. If you're a crusty Christian, you've been around a while, I want you to think about this afresh because I think God has something for you too today. I want you to think about um, committing yourself to the Sunday gathering and to life in community. And this goes against the current of the society in which we live in. It goes against the current of society. Some of these friends that were talking to me post-wedding we're saying the common refrain. You read about it in Christian books. We pastors and people that lead in the church, we bemoan this reality. But I was seeing it in real time. People saying, I love Jesus. I pray to Jesus now more than ever. I just don't have really any relationship with the church anymore. And it's easy to portray Jesus as a rogue, solitary figure, an individualist figure, a freedom-fighting, independent person who was disassociated with the traditions of Israel. But can I tell you, when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke in particular, here's what one commentator said about the Gospel of Luke. If you look at Jesus, he was always sharing a meal with someone, going to a meal with someone, or just coming back from a meal with someone. He hung out with saints and sinners. There's a Billy Joel song in here somewhere. He hung out with saints and sinners, so much so, I think a lot of you know this, you know this, he hung out with sinners so much so that the stuffy religious people accused him of being a drunkard, of being a glutton. So much feasting. Oh, he's one of them. He's worldly because he loved to hang out with sinners and saints alike. But here's what Luke's gospel also included uh, about Jesus. It says this in uh, Luke chapter 4. It says that he went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. Anybody know what he read? Somebody in the 930 got this right. Anybody know what he read in Luke 4? He read from Isaiah. He rolled out the scroll in front of people. He was, he was a, a young man. And he read from Isaiah about the chains being loosened, about caring for the poor and those who were enslaved, those who needed to be uh, set free from bondage um, at, because of their sin, because of the oppressive structures of their day, but ultimately because of sin and how it weighs us down. And Jesus it says this, notice the phrase, this is what I want to call your attention to, is it says, as was his custom. Here's how we would put it today. He was a regular churchgoer. So can I just stomp on the myth? I mean, you, you, you're going to leave here in a minute. You're going to give me the benefit of the doubt and listen to the rest of the sermon. But you're going to leave here in a little bit and live any way you want to. I know that. You know that. But I'm just saying, I want to stomp on this truth from the scripture. History bears this out. That Jesus wasn't a rogue individual. In fact, he came to destroy the idea of a vertical, independent relationship, detached relationship with God. It's horizontal. It's togetherness. It's us being a part of a community. It's us going to church and being a part. So I want to challenge you in this twofold challenge. Number one, to recommit to gather on Sundays, to gather with God's people. Think about it afresh. I was talking to a friend who lives out west. He was telling me what his family has done post-COVID. He said, we decided that we would, as a family, we would show up at church on the regular. We would show up and our goal would be to change someone's day. How about that? And he said, it, lo it's, it, it looks so many different ways. It could be entering into a beautiful conversation with someone you don't know. 
It could be reconnecting with a friend and having some, providing them some encouragement. It could be kind, being kind to a rambunctious child. It could be helping an elderly woman out to her car. It could be humbling yourself at the altar when the pastor calls for invitation time. It, to change, engage yourself, be present, and look to change someone's life that day. Have you noticed that if you change someone's day, you could change their life? If you, if you provide that, and what a different way to look at church. Can I say, can I issue that challenge? That you would recommit to gathering on Sundays and you would look to see how you can serve here, how you can have an hour plus at this place if this is your church, if it's not that other place that you're going to go to next Sunday and, and later. But commit yourself to seeking to change someone's day. How different that could be than just being a consumer and coming to get something out of it. It says this about Jesus. The psalmist put it this way, looking forward to the Messiah. He said, he has zeal for your house. Zeal for your house consumes me. A, a writer in Galatians 6 to a church there in the Mediterranean world would say, be kind to everybody, be good to everybody, especially those who are of the household of faith. Jesus cares about his church house. It looks different. I've worshipped in bowling alleys and gymnasiums and, and bars and church sanctuaries. I've worshipped in five different continents and under tents and out in primitive pastures. Look, God cares, not the place so much, not the building as much as we do oftentimes, but he cares that we gather with his people. He cares that we know the household of faith and that we invite people in and we're good to people who are in the household of faith. This is on God's heart. This is the message and this is what he uses to change the world. Somebody once asked, let me back up for a second. I don't want to steal my own thunder. Someone asked a brilliant um, Australian theologian, Dr. Ben Myers, a really, really smart guy, and they said, why do you go to church? Now, I think I, I'm not one, but I, I know some smart people. I've noticed that really smart people hang out with really smart people. And it probably, I'm guessing that these really smart people ask this really smart person, I mean, you're really smart. Why do you go to church? You follow me? And here's what he said in his answer. I do not go to church because it is enjoyable. Sometimes it is not. Or because it is never dull. Sometimes it is. I do not go to church because it satisfies my private needs and wishes. It seldom does. I do not go to church for myself. I go because of Adam. That's odd. He's saying, here's a bit of humor and irony. He said, I go because of Adam, but you see, I'm Adam. I don't go because of me, I go because of Adam, but yet I'm Adam. And Adam, you know, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that Adam was the first man and that Adam was deceived. Adam was tempted and he was lured away by sin. He had an opportunity in the midst of God's goodness to continue to trust God, but he chose not to believe God when a lie was set before him. And he chose the lie. And this really smart Australian theologian is saying, I am Adam and I, I can be deceived. And even though things are going great and I'm really smart and accomplished, I, I can be deceived. I can be lured into sin. And what does sin do? Sin will deceive you. Sin pulls you away. It uproots you. It fractures your life. It sinks you. It, it pulls you away. And next thing you know, you're, you're Adam. You're running and you're hiding and you're blaming. And nobody in this room finds joy in those things. You may have escaped something, 
but you're finding no joy and no life deep in your bones, your soul and your bones and your marrow if you're running and you're hiding and blaming. And this really smart guy gives us, Fondren Church, I think a sufficient answer as to why we should go to church. We go because we need God and we may not feel that need now, but let me tell you, we gotta be careful. And that's what happens, especially people my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, we, we fall prey to the illusion of self-mastery. Oh, I'm at peace now. Things are okay and I got this. The famous last words, I got this. So today, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It took me a while to say that, so I'm going to be fast in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, but it's really rich. And I want to use this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 15, to not only say gather on Sunday, but to live life in community. Here's the passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. Now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. I want to utilize these truths to call you to live life in community. And then I'll be very specific at the close in the balance of the time that we have. So here's Paul. He opens this letter. We won't run like we did in 1 Corinthians for all those months. But I do want to say that Paul opened this letter and he writes Paul and Timothy and Silas. And he writes to the church of the Thessalonians. He's not writing to George or Sarah or Hank or Leslie. He's writing to the church of the Thessalonians. In other words, here we are. We're a group of people relationally connected. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, the leaders, the church planters. We have a heavenly father and we're writing to you. We're writing to you who are here, to those of you who aren't even here yet. We're writing to a handsome bald-headed preacher in Jackson, Mississippi uh, in August of 2023. We're writing so that you would hear these words and you would put them into practice. And he's writing saying, uh, listen, this is the kingdom of God. It's relational. At its core, it's relationships. So he writes and he addresses four different types of relationships. We don't have time. We won't look at all four, but I want to mention them. He talks, talks about our relationship with leaders, our relationship with the church as a whole, our relationship with those who are struggling, and lastly, our relationship with our enemies. Okay, Our relationship with our leaders, our relationship with the church as a whole, our relationship with those who are struggling, and then our relationship with our enemies or uh, the world. Enemies, it's a different phrase back then. And Paul's going to borrow heavily from Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount about how we treat those who disagree with us or who are even after us and persecuting us. And it's, man, you're talking about swimming against the current. Very, very different than what the world teaches. If you, plop, if you fly planes into our skyscrapers, we're invading your country and taking you down. If you, uh, if you walk out on me, I'm going to make you pay. We, we exact... Of vengeance and we go after people and Jesus is saying what if what if there's a different way that we live so relationship I want I want to look at this first that's a relationship with our leaders now this is a very self-serving part of the sermon okay can I say it, it just this is really good for me uh, to preach this I hope it'll be good for me but look it's in the Bible so I'm preaching it here's what Paul says that 
that we have a relationship with leaders and I know what I'm doing here because the thing today is, is to fight against leadership, to resist authority. How many of you are Americans? How many Americans do we have in the room? America, our nation, uh, y'all actually raised your hand. I love that. You're playing along. Uh, How many, (laughs) y'all like, okay. Okay. a lot of Americans here, look, America was built on an anti-authoritarianism, right? Like, uh, taxation without representation. We're going to sling tea into the Boston Harbor, and we are going to rebel against you. We are, by nature, a rebellious people. The people that are writing books, I got a bunch of them in my library behind me. The people that are writing books are like, you know, leadership today is non-leadership. If you want to be a good leader, you're like a non-leader, whatever that means. I get it. I get it. Because I understand, look, I, I resist authority in so many ways. I'm an American as well, and I like to assert myself. But he's writing and he's saying to, to gather on Sunday and to live deeper and richer in community, you'll need to understand this relationship with your leaders, and it really matters. It's not a parasitic relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship. It's reciprocal, and we work well together. He says there's three things that uh, leaders uh, need to do. The leader has three jobs that he mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5. All this in um, 12, and, oh, 12 and 13. Uh, let me say there. Uh, he says this, that a leader should work hard. A leader in the church, a leader developing and growing and organizing a Jesus community is a leader that should work hard. Paul would write and say in Colossians 1, we agonize and we labor, admonishing everyone to be complete in Christ. It's not just coming to church. It's that you would grow up. It's it's that you would be different. You would be a different person next year than you are today. It's that you would be growing. You would take the teachings of Jesus. You would sit ultimately under his authority and would take seriously his words and then you would go apply them and be changed. And by the way, you change people around you. I don't know if you know this, but if you follow Jesus' words, you're going to change yourself. You're going to change your family. You're going to change where you work. It's all in God's timing. But if you take his word seriously and he's writing and saying, hey, leaders should work hard. We should labor uh, to do this. Ministry is exhausting. It's emotionally taxing. It's very hard work. And he's saying leaders should work hard. A second thing that he's saying is that leaders should care for other people. He says leaders, uh, they serve, and then he says they serve and work hard among you. They care, they guide, they protect, they guard. It's a leader's job. But a leader, this authority, by the way, if you look at the original Greek language here, it's not the authority of a boss or a CEO or a military general. You can't lead in the church like Nick Saban leads the Alabama football team. You can't lead like a five-star general, not in the church, not when you're a shepherd, not when you're following the chief shepherd, not when you're washing feet. It doesn't work that way. So it's not a boss or CEO or military general. It's more like a parent. It's more like a parent, and which brings us to our third thing that leaders do. Uh, They work hard, they care for the people, uh, and then they admonish. This version that we read in the Christian Standard Bible says they exhort, but I'm gonna go with the word admonish as I teach it here. They admonish, and this is kind of the parenting example. The parenting example, if you're going to be a good parent, listen to me. I think you know this. I hope you know this. If not, we'll need to do another parenting seminar really fast. But a good parent's going to say, I love you, but you need to step down from that rail. Look, you're a great kid, but you can't talk to your mama like that. You're, You're amazing, but you need to do your homework. Now, that's good parenting. Would you agree that that's good parenting? You, you're going to say, I love you, 
but be careful here. Now, if you're not doing that and you're raising kids, you're giving the world some little hellions, okay? You're going to send them off to, to school a Sunday morning down the hall. Are we okay? We're, we're great. We're perfect at Fonder Church. We're talking about other churches. But if you're raising your kids like that, you're sending them off to schools and places. They're going to be, you know, online on Worldstar having fights and stuff. You're, you're raising hellions if you're not parenting them, if you're not saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, and there's no doubt you love them because you're not looking at your phone. You're looking at them. And they know that you love them, but you're also saying, hey, here, let me tell you something. Here's how we're going to do it here. Do you understand? And that's good parenting. And Paul is saying that that's what leaders do. But it's also what we do uh, for one another. So there's this relationship that leaders have. Um, and they work hard and they care and they admonish. But there's also relationship that members have, a uh, relationship with the church as a whole. And it says this in this uh, verse 13, it says that the, the relationship with, that people have with the whole church, that you and I have with the whole church, that, um, that we hold our leaders in high regard. We hold them in high regard. I hearken to Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 7, and I get emotional about this. It says, remember your leaders who instructed you in God's word. Consider their faith and the outcome of their way of life. And I know it's a big thing, especially in the poisonous environment of online dialogue or monologue. It's really popular to bash leaders and talk about abuse. And man, abuse should be exposed. That something that's been covered up should come to light. Jesus made that promise in Luke 8, 17. Anyway, I tell people often, if you're a leader and you're hiding, if you're a leader in the church and you're hiding a secret, people are going to find out. Ultimately, it's going to be exposed. You know, the smartest people around you, they know that you're compensating for the secret that you're hiding. And so God gives you and I the gift of confession. But here it says in Hebrews 13, parallel to 1 Thessalonians 5, that church members, that people, that our relationship as a whole church is that we, we need leaders who are good leaders and godly leaders, women and men who lead us well. And we, we, Hebrews 13, we look at their life and their outcome of their faith. And can I just tell you, I told this to the first uh, congregation this morning, I, I love the local church. I've always loved the local church. And this is a big reason why. Is that I can look back and I see people who instructed me and taught me and loved me and mentored me and admonished me. And I'm different because of it. And I see the fruit in their life and I want that. I want to, there is a few people in my life, I want to follow Jesus the way they have followed Jesus. And so a member of a church should hold leader in high regard. They should honor them. That does not mean that you elevate them to celebrity status. That does not mean blind obedience. That does not mean unquestioning allegiance. I kind of want that in my flesh, but you don't give that to me. You don't give that to any leader. No leader deserves that. In fact, Jesus doesn't call for that. He actually says, question him. Bring him your questions. Uh, you're going to be blind. You're going to grope blindly in the darkness. He's going to be the light. It's going to be a, you know, a, it's going to be a joy and a labor to follow him, to learn from him to learn his ways but don't give any leader that but leaders in the church he's writing saying should be honored if we're gonna gather on Sundays if we're gonna live in community leaders need to work hard they need to care for people they do admonish their church and the people in the church need to love their leaders and hold them in high regard and that's what he says in verse 13 that word love circle it for what we're gonna talk about for the next six weeks we're calling you into community as we say all you need is love it's not just a Beatles song from the 60s it's gonna be our sermon series our small group study and we hope Hope you'll be involved. It's the craving and the ache of every human heart uh, in the room. So Paul writes 
he says he talks about relationship with leaders, relationship with the church as a whole, and the relationship with those who are struggling. And he mentions three types of struggles, really four, but I'll, I'll highlight these three. He mentions those who are idle, those who are discouraged, and those who are weak. Those who are idle or rebellious, some translations render it, those who are idle are struggling morally. Those who are discouraged are struggling emotionally. And those who are weak are struggling in general. And he has something for each of them. To the idle, to the one who's lazy, to the one who doesn't have a symbiotic, mutual, reciprocal relationship, who has a parasitic relationship, this is the one. And the New Testament, just FYI for your own learning, I don't know if anybody needs to hear this at the 11 o'clock service, but man, the New Testament is, uh, I know it's grace, 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 Jesus, 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 but there's hard words for the lazy person. Hard words for the, for the man who won't provide for his family. And so he's writing and saying, to be a genuine community, you need to, you need to warn the idol. You need to warn the one who's not taking responsibility. Able body now, able body, because remember we got the weak and all that, but able body people, the person who's bouncing from job to job, who won't accept responsibility, the rebellious or disruptive person. It's the person who says, I'm not going to live under authority. Hey, newsflash, I had lunch recently with a few friends. They're all pretty successful in their different spheres of vocation. And one, one guy goes, hey, I mean, I couldn't work for anybody. Could you? And it, we kind of went around, the, and I was last to, to respond. And I, mean, I remember thinking, man, this, like, my answer really matters. Uh, because they were, they're good friends, but I, I think they were kind of getting it wrong. And I, they've arrived, and they're the bosses, and everybody in the org chart is under them. But let me tell you, a leader in the church, and for you, I, let me say, everybody should answer to people. No one in this room shouldn't have people that you answer to. It's why when God wrote his book and he gave the church, the apostles and the prophets and the teachers and the evangelists and such, he said there's a plurality of leadership and make sure. And by the way, the next scandal you see that breaks, the next scandal in the church, wherever it is, uh, Hillsong, Mars Hill, Willow Creek, wherever it is, some, one, there's one coming soon probably. I guarantee you, if you dig under the surface, you'll see that somebody, usually a man, wasn't accountable and didn't answer to anybody. Paul is writing and saying a Jesus community, everybody answers. And everybody has someone that they're under, even if you're, quote unquote, on the top of the org chart. And he's saying these relationships, they really do matter. And some people are rebellious. They don't want authority. He's saying we warn them. Here's what I want to say. To warn somebody, have you ever done it? To warn someone is really what I was talking about earlier. I love you, little junior, I love you, but you ain't going to talk to your mama that way. I and that's what, listen, that... It's easy to read this passage and go, well, that's what I do. And can I say, I accept the mantle. I embrace the mantle of leadership. I am here to warn you. That's part of the job in preaching the whole counsel of God is to warn you because eternity is at stake. And we're in a battle. And I like to joke a lot, maybe too much. My wife tells me to check my sarcasm at the door. But we're in a battle. This is a war. And so we need to warn each other because of the severity of everything that's at stake. So we warn each other. Can you warn others? Here's what I'm saying to you. Paul doesn't just say leaders warn people. Read it again. We warn each other. We admonish each other. So warn the idol. Can you have a difficult conversation? Can you speak? Can you overcome the awkwardness, which is always about your ego and your comfort? Always. Can you trust God enough to have that conversation and to bring it in love? Here's what I would say to you. I've thought a lot about this organizations and teams and communities and churches continue in their dysfunction, not because we are too mean to each other, but because we play too nice. 
So let us, as we gather on Sunday, go beyond that. As we live in community, let's be the type of people who warn and admonish and exhort each other. It's not a top-down approach. It's a center out where we have these type of relationships in community, in a group, where we can call each other to account. And by the way, I was thinking about that very phrase. We use it a lot, right? We need people who will call each other out. Man, we need to call. You ever said that? I think I've said it here a bunch, so I need to be careful. Like, we need to call each other out. But it reminds me, the connotations remind me of the religious leaders in John chapter 8. They called the woman out because of her affairs, and they called her out in the center of the ring, the COA. Some of us like to be the center of attention, but not if it's your adultery, not if it's your sin played out in public, and the religious leaders say, hey, let's get this woman, and let's put her out there in public, and let's call her out. And sometimes I think... We don't want to have hard conversations because we don't want to call people out or we do want to call them out. And I was thinking instead of calling people out, maybe we should call them forward. Maybe we'll have the difficult conversation. Maybe we'll address something in somebody's life. Just like a parent says, don't stand too close to the rail. or You're not going to talk to your mom like that. Just like a loving parent does that in love, wrapped and enveloped in the warmth of consistent love. We have the type of relationships where we pursue where in love, we can say that to someone, but we don't call them out as in like to expose them. We call them forward to say, hey, you know what? God's got something in your life and I see it, do you? I see this in you. And I have been the benefactor of this myself. And praise God for it. But gosh, dog, it hurt in the moment. So there's those who are idle and then there are those who are struggling. So warn the idle and then what does it say? Anybody got their Bible? Warn the idle and then what? Comfort the discouraged. Now, this could be heavy because this could be people, hear me out, this could be people in this room, in our midst, deeply loved and valued by God who struggle with anxiety and depression and mental disorders. And this word, by the way, in the Greek, is, it's actually a phrase, and it, 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 it means this, the, the ones with little souls. And it sounds insulting, but I think it's a proper descriptor. You're shriveling. You're, uh, you're shriveling because you lack courage. You're so discouraged that your soul is not all that it can be. You're not dreaming the dreams and you're not courageous. Remember what we looked at last week, you know, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, let everything you do be done in love. Uh, you're lacking that because your soul is little and you need to be encouraged. And so he writes and says, encourage those who, um, you know, comfort those who are discouraged. Be there for them. And then lastly, another group of people, he says, uh, that are struggling are the weak. And the connotations here are very simple. These are the people that are sick, that are poor, that are on the outside, and that need help. Y'all know the phrase that's bantered about with political debate, particularly on gun control after a, a terrible school shooting or something? Uh, what's the phrase that people hate? Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. And can I surmise a moment and tell you who else probably hates that? God. That's a weird thing to say. I'm probably going to backpedal on that if you email me later. But thoughts and prayers only? To corollary to me is James chapter 2. Talking about helping the weak. James chapter 2 says if you see someone naked and they're not doing well and they're down and out and they don't have anything, don't tell them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Thoughts and prayers. He says what? 
you, you take care of them. And so as a church, as a community, if we're going to live in a community and be a Jesus community, here's what we're going to do. Here's a bed. Here's food. Here's medicine. Here's counseling. Here's help. Let me ask you, do you want to be a part of a community like that? D- does that fire you up to think that we could be more and more of a community like that? And to the extent that we commit to the gathering and we live in community and we follow Jesus, let me tell you, he's going to form and shape us into that kind of community. And I love to see it when we get that right. Recently, I, I talked to leaders in Fondren Renaissance and um, serving uh, this next year on their board. And they were in my office recently talking about uh, the problems that plague our city. And it was a little bit of pride on my part to know that some of the homeless people that they know and talk about and try to help, that we're helping them as well. It, it's hard. It's very difficult. There are great challenges when you put mental illness there but to see our church be the church in our city. And so the writing for the community here in this fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians is, hey, you've got a relationship with your leaders, a relationship with the church as a whole, a relationship with those who are struggling. And those who are struggling can be the idle or disruptive, can be those who are discouraged, can be those who are weak. And then finally, he says, be patient with everybody. Can I get an amen there? Here's the thing, to be human is to bleed and sweat and struggle and stumble. Anybody stumble this week? Anybody struggling right now with something you're afraid to even talk about? Like that's part of being a human. So we are to be patient with everyone. That's like the safety net, the stopgap. And I love it. And so can I say about this, as I talk about a twofold invitation to gather on Sunday, to think about that afresh and to live in community. If you get into this fifth chapter of this ancient letter, you'll see that he's writing and he's saying, this is not um, a leaders only thing. This is a church wide thing and that we do it together. We have a little saying behind the scenes that people pastor people. There's only a few of us and we're not enough. And if God were to grow us in any way, we're sure not enough. I told our staff the other day, I'm not a king around here, but I'm like, I think we got enough staff. Y'all are doing great. We love y'all, but we got enough staff. Even if we grow, I think we got enough staff. I want to see our church not necessarily grow larger. I do want to see us grow up to the third floor, but I want to see us grow smaller. I want to see community matter. I want to see you and I show up where we need to show up and live in community. So let me share with you how God can change your life as Lauren and the team come up. He's changed mine this way, and I look at his word, and I look at his church and how he works, and I see, I see significant events, and I see safe environments. A significant event like you recommitting yourself to the Sunday morning gathering is a way for us to see God inspire us and give us hope. I think of the time when I was a young man and I went to Ridgecrest in North Carolina to this retreat and God changed my life. It was a very significant event. I remember when I was in a ballroom at the Lowe's Anatole in Dallas, Texas as a freshman at Mississippi State University and I heard Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ say, come help change the world. And I walked front to the front and I said, I'm called to ministry. I wanna, I wanna change the world. That was a long time ago. I think of going to uh, Daytona Beach for Operation Sunshine, S-O-N, S-H-I-N-E, Operation Sunshine. See what we did there? spring break conference and a man named Crawford Loritz. Google that name, Crawford Loritz. Watch a sermon of Crawford's today. You'll thank me. Crawford Loritz brought the word and it changed me. And I remember 
I remember everything about the everything about that sermon. It changed me. Within God uses events to motivate people, but He uses safe environments to mature people. God uses significant events to challenge people. He uses safe environments to change us. Significant event is a calendar issue. If you're here, this is your church. Nine thirty and eleven Sunday morning. We're here. A safe environment is a consistency issue. It's showing up. You gotta show up, not just when it's convenient. A significant event is often fun. A safe environment is more often gritty. Uh, confession, I can't tell you how many times I don't want to go to my small group because it's at 6.30 in the morning, but I can't think of a single small group where I regretted showing up. And they're counting on me because I'm the leader of my group. So that, that helps. And they come to church here, so there's a really good accountability built in. But many times I don't want to get up and go. When we're in a big environment, God, we're reminded that God is big. When we're in a safe environment, in a small group, we're reminding each other that God is near. A significant event, no surprise, is a big group. A safe environment is a small group. The secret to vitality is found between the meeting as much as in the meeting. The problem with small groups isn't that they pull the group's collective ignorance, is that they pull the group's collective disobedience. Some of you, listen, your practice is this, and I'm not being overly critical, I'm not saying this is inherently wrong, but your practice is come to church on Sunday morning, podcast your favorite preacher because I'm not your favorite preacher then there's another favorite preacher you heard about so you podcast them and then you're in a Bible study and then you go to a gender specific group and then you're in that new small group and then there's something else that you're doing and then like you've had like seven realms of intake you say preacher you're criticizing that well not necessarily but if you're not careful you're just you're learning a lot forgetting more than you're learning and applying none of it so the opportunity we have for six weeks is for us to do this series all you need is love together all of our groups aligned and we'll learn together and have a central message as we learn about what love is. Here's what I'm asking of you. To sign up, show up, open up, and then own up. Own up to what God says to you through your brothers and sisters in Christ. Own up, open up. This is important for us to know. I want you to ask these four questions. Stand with me because this is a long sermon and next week I'll be short. The next week, I'll be short. And all the weeks in the future, I'll be short. Four questions for everybody in the room, even you, like staff members. You pay professionals like me. Number one, in what area are you pretending to have it together, especially around people of faith? Y'all know surveys say churches can be just as phony as like a used car showroom. Number two, if you're not in a group that meets regularly, what's keeping you from joining one? Number three, if you're in a group, what do you see as a next step in terms of letting the group know the real you? And number four, while not everybody needs to know everything about you, what specifically can you do to be more known by someone? Father, thanks for this morning. I pray that you uh, work among your people, that this would not just be a sermon that was preached and heard, but that there would be around this room and people at home today would make a renewed commitment to gather on Sundays and to live life in community. That we would think about the relationship we, we have with our leaders, as leaders, with the church, with those who are struggling, and that we would be honest with our struggles and know when we're being idle or disruptive or rebellious or when we're discouraged or when we're weak. And Lord, that we would be a patient people as we love each other. Move in our midst. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I know I may lose some of you because we gone to the top of the hour, but I want to ask you to pray today 
to sing. You're standing. I want to ask everybody to sing. And the altar is open. I want, I want to ask some of you, especially if you're a leader, to consider uh, coming to the altar today um, to pray sincerely, but as a manifestation that, Lord, you want to commit yourself to what we've talked about today. And you want to be a leader. And you want to be known. And you want to help other people be known as well. Let's open up our altar. You just come and kneel for a moment today as we sing. Or take one of us by the hand if we can pray for you. Pray for you as you renew a commitment today.